This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Jane Pauley is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. We usually think of spring as a time for new beginnings. However, this spring, we're noting the passing of a piece of Americana. The most storied circus in history is folding its tent in a few weeks, but not before we say our goodbyes in this morning's cover story. It was the comfort food of American entertainment. Say the name Ringling Brothers and that said it all. But progress has caught up with the greatest show on earth, and it's time to call it quits. As a fan, I go, you know, I wanted to stay. It has to be. But as a realist, nothing lasts forever. Why, even children of all ages weren't enough to save the big top ahead. Hollow notes were a signature of the 1980s, but they hit the charts way before that. This morning, they're talking to Serena Altschul for the record. The best-selling duo in music history takes us back to where it all began. Yes, it was called the Adelphi Ballroom. When Hall met Oates. You're a rich girl, and, you're gone. and how a chance encounter changed everything. Ahead on Sunday morning. When it comes to star power in the field of science, few, if any, can outshine stargazer Neil deGrasse Tyson. Martha Teichner takes us into his orbit. (laughs) (laughs) It's not everybody who has a hunk of meteorite in his office. Or the Saturn lamp he made in seventh grade shop class. Neil deGrasse Tyson has made a career out of bringing the sky down to earth. This movie violates more known laws of physics per minute. Later this Sunday morning, 
America's best-known astrophysicist, takes a star turn. When the closing bell tolls for a famous bellmaker in London, it will ring on our side of the Atlantic as well. We'll be hearing all about that from Jim Axelrod. The first Liberty Bell was cast exactly where we are sitting, beneath our feet in a pit. They made the bells for Westminster Abbey and Big Ben, too. But after 500 years in business, one of the world's oldest companies is about to close. But this story is about a lot more than bells. Ahead on Sunday morning. Faith Saley tells us about the man behind E equals MC squared. David Edelstein marks the passing of film director Jonathan Demme. Major Garrett looks back on President Trump's first 100 days and more. Next, last call for the greatest show on earth. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. After juggling the numbers as best it could, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus is folding its tent. Faced with declining ticket sales, the circus is rolling into town for its final performance three weeks from today. Which means for anyone wanting to pass on the tradition, there's little time left. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to the greatest show on earth. It is a pretty bold claim. Greatest show on earth. The Bringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey had every reason to brag. There was a time when there really was nothing else like it. Ringling was controlled mayhem, a dizzying array of performers risking life and limb, alongside a menagerie of exotic animals from faraway lands. After 146 years, all the thrills are still there, but the wonder seems to have faded. Ladies and gentlemen, Ringling's ringmaster, Jonathan Lee Iverson, laments that today, when kids go looking for the greatest show on earth, many look for it on their smartphones instead. More and more, unfortunately, we're becoming a society that really doesn't embrace wonder anymore. Are you ready, my friends? The wonder that we offer, you can't find it on Facebook. You can't find it on YouTube. You have to engage. You have to be there. You have to be present. And it takes relating to others, not like yourself. That's how this has been made. A fact of modern life that brought the mighty big top to its knees. Without a doubt, it was the toughest business decision that we've made, and we made it together as a family. Kenneth Feld is CEO of Feld Entertainment. His dad, Irvin Feld, bought the circus from the Ringlings for $8 million back in 1967. They were caretakers of a slice of Americana and a home for a unique community whose desire to dazzle outweighed just about everything else. The love is for the institution, but the greater love is for the people that make up that institution. And that's the difficult part. Feld grew up with sawdust in his veins, and so did his three daughters, Alana, Nicole, and Juliet. They even performed with the Ringling Clowns on occasion. Did you ever get that itch to perform yourself? I went to circus camp for a little while. I was in a roller skating act where I lit a match on the floor with my teeth. And I gained... (laughs) Can you still do that? I, that is a good party I don't know trick. that I would want to try <laughs> at this point. Over the years, the Feld sisters tried to help their father infuse the circus with 21st century sensibilities, while still keeping the show's 19th century traditions intact. But it was a balancing act that in the end just didn't balance their bottom line. The economic model, it didn't work anymore, um, and we don't want to compromise what is the greatest show on earth. 
you know, it is, it's still really hard and it's, it's emotional for sure. Baraboo, Wisconsin is where Ringling's long run started. Their name is still everywhere here, as is the country's largest circus museum, Circus World. It was five Ringling brothers, Al, Alf, Charles, John, and Anna, who pitched their first tent in Baraboo in 1884 and began carting their variety act in wagons all around the Midwest. Eventually, they were big enough to buy their biggest competitor, the Barnum and Bailey Circus. And the combined shows brought amusement right to Main Street, USA. Its arrival was a heralded event. The circus train was more than a mile long. At each stop, both man and beast alike would be unloaded, and within hours, a vacant lot was turned into a canvas city. How many people would the big top seat? 12,000. 12,000? Mm -hmm. Really? Howard Tibbles was so blown away, he spent much of his 81 years recreating that spectacle in miniature. How long did this, just the big top, take you to make? It took uh, 18 years. He wanted to preserve mm -hmm. what, what I've seen as a kid. His replica, now on display at the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art in Sarasota, covers half the length of a football field. There's one door on anyway. He's built more than 150 circus wagons, 59 train cars, ticket booths, concession stands, all by hand and all in exacting detail. Do you have any idea how much you've spent doing this? No, nobody needs to know. <laughs> His model captures the magic that the traveling circus held. A spell cast on anyone looking for adventure, even after Ringling ditched the big top in favor of the air-conditioned comfort of arenas. You hear people talking all the time about running away and joining the circus. Did you guys actually? Yeah, we did. did. We did. And yeah. that's, I think, one of the, the great, like, I don't know, you know, we get to tell people that. And people go, yeah, I know. Oh, you did. Yeah. You really did run away and join a circus. Karen and Greg DeSanto became part of the traveling troupe of clowns for Ringling. They actually met at Clown College. In fact, Greg was a teacher there. He now runs the International Clown Hall of Fame in Baraboo. Is it as romantic a life as it sounds? It definitely well, I think it's more romantic now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, yes. yes. But <laughs> at the time, it is. It, you know, it's, it's like a lifestyle. A lifestyle that took them through America's backyard in their tiny home on the rails. Like you wouldn't fit in it. No, it was, <laughs> it was six feet long, three feet wide, and then about nine feet tall. So it was a closet with a door. Size didn't matter, though melting pot that was the circus, language and customs all blended with the symphony of animals that traveled right along with them. Elephants were in the room right next to my first train car. The elephant car was the, was the next one over. So I'd lay out and they'd open the windows, the elephants, and their trunks would come out yeah. and they'd sway and I'd feed them. I'd try to reach over and give them treats and they'd try to reach over too. I mean, there's a baby tiger that used to live on our car. On our car yeah. <laughs> Rambo, yeah, and it would run up and down the hallway, a baby Bengal tiger. <laughs> yeah. The animals, especially those elephants, had always been Ringling's biggest draw. They were also its Achilles heel. Animal rights advocates had long protested forcing wild animals to perform as entertainment. Feld spent years denying accusations of abuse and won more than $20 million in court settlements. Nevertheless, Ringling packed in their famous pachyderms last year. And that, says Feld, was the beginning of the end. When we made the decision to take the elephants off the road in May of 2016, we saw a drop in ticket sales and attendance way beyond what we anticipated. Like how much? It was substantial. Without the circus, Feld Entertainment still has plenty of entertaining to do. It brings us Disney on Ice and Monster Truck Jam, too just to name a few. The circus lives in a lot of places besides the circus. Like in the mud. Exactly. <laughs> there are, of course, other circuses, lots of them, in fact. But there will never be another Ringling. You know, I was thinking the other day, man, you're going to be the last voice any of these circus fans will ever hear. Wow. 
you know? I mean, I'm holding on to that. I sort of believe like Dr. Seuss, you know? <laughs> you know, don't, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Ahead, we've got a seat on the shuttle. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, April 30th, 1961, 56 years ago today. Launch day for the Eastern Airlines shuttle between Boston, New York, and Washington. One of America's oldest and biggest airlines, Eastern, promised travelers hourly departures and no reservations required. Just $12 one way from New York to Boston, $14 from New York to Washington. The shuttle was a huge success, a storied part of the golden age of air traffic, celebrated in countless television commercials. Anytime there's a choice, I always say Eastern. Yes, sir. Tickets, baggage, they do it all for you. You just sit back and enjoy it. For sale, you got money. But only for so long. Labor problems ultimately doomed Eastern Airlines, which shut down in 1991, two years after it had sold the shuttle to Donald Trump. Shuttle ownership passed then to U.S. Airways and then again to American following their 2015 merger. As for that $14 airfare to Washington, well, forget about it, as some New Yorkers might say. Our online search found shuttle fares now in the hundreds of dollars, depending on the flight. Coming up... Einstein was the first great scientific celebrity. Real genius. E equals MC squared. It's synonymous with Albert Einstein. His mind-bending theories have long been the stuff of textbooks. Now Faye Saley tells us his equations and his personal life have become the stuff of a TV series. In scientific circles, stars don't get any bigger than Albert Einstein. Not on this planet, anyway. Einstein was the first great scientific celebrity. So beginning in the 1920s, he would come to America. Crowds would come out to see him. It was pretty odd for a theoretical physicist. Walter Isaacson has chronicled the life of Albert Einstein, who was born in Germany in 1879. He's brilliant, but he's also like your uncle. He can't quite remember where he's left his shoes, and he needs to know the rules of baseball, and he's fun with kids, helping them. He wasn't some strange genius from a different planet. He was human. Einstein's genius is the subject and title of a new series on the National Geographic Channel. It stars Jeffrey Rush as Einstein. Now catch me! And Johnny Flynn portrays the scientist as a young man. When you were traveling the speed of light alongside the way... It turns out Einstein's life was as unconventional as his theories. Einstein was a total rogue in his personal life, he was a runaway. He always got in trouble with his teachers, falls in love with this wonderful physics student. And they have a child before they're married. All of these things are this rebellious, impudent nature, which I think also leads him to challenge the basic tenets of science. Einstein upended more than 200 years of scientific thinking when he uncovered the mechanics of gravity in 1915. Everybody thought that gravity was basically an old subject completely figured out by Isaac Newton, the old apple falling on the head thing. Columbia University physicist Brian Green. Here comes Albert Einstein and says, I have a radically new way of thinking about gravity. Newton's is just an approximation to this more spectacular picture in which space and time warp and curve. Electricity, magnetism, Green brings to life Einstein's quest to uncover the structure of the universe in a theatrical production called Light Falls. Einstein is hot on the trail of the general theory of relativity. And I got to tell you, as I read these pages as a physicist, even though I kind of know how it all turns out, I'm cheering Einstein on. 
Einstein's general theory of relativity was so revolutionary and new that it triggered a lot of old-fashioned bigotry. There were Nobel laureates who described it as Jewish physics, but in the end of the day, data is what speaks in science. Doesn't matter what you think, what you believe. If your ideas make predictions that are borne out by observations or experiments, the community of scientists looks and says that's the right direction to go. I do not permit anything. In 1933, Einstein was visiting the U.S. when Hitler seized power. Instead of returning to Germany, he settled in Princeton, New Jersey, where he lived until his death in 1955. To this day, we have Einstein to thank for GPS, solar panels, weather forecasting, digital cameras, and even the dawn of the nuclear age. Most of us think of science as, well, it's the cold hard facts. But Einstein was there with heart and soul. Scientists should be heroes. They're real people. They're magical, and they have a certain beauty to what they do. Next, for whom the bells toll. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. The bells at the National Cathedral in Washington will no doubt be around for a very long time. Not so the foundry that cast some of them, however. Turns out it's that very foundry for which the closing bell tolls. Jim Axelrod has an appreciation. There is a certain timelessness inside London's Whitechapel Bell Foundry, where it could be the 21st century or the 19th. This ram I'm using is 100 years old, or thereabouts. This tool. That tool is a hundred years old, or thereabouts, yes, or even earlier. So is the whole bell an F sharp bell? Yes. Alan Hughes's family has owned the foundry since 1904. I'm surrounded with bells. I mean, my whole life has been spent with bells, and I don't get too excited about it. But that's just his family. How far back does the Whitechapel Bell Foundry go? We have always claimed. 1570. Historical research has indicated we were more likely established sometime around 1420, which would mean the foundry was in business more than a century before Shakespeare was born. At half a millennium, this is the oldest continuously operating business in the UK. But after centuries and centuries, the company that produced the bells for Westminster Abbey. As well as Big Ben. Big Ben isn't the clock; it's the bell. The Whitechapel Bell Foundry has cast its last. We don't need bells. They were needed in the sense that they were the way of communicating basic information to what was then a largely illiterate population. They warned you of invading armies. They actually served a practical purpose. So. Bells are used today because we like them, not because we need them. Even if demand was higher, the foundry is located smack in the middle of one of London's hottest neighborhoods. That's another rule of modern life: prime real estate tops history. And it won't be just the Brits losing a connection with their history. We will too. The first Liberty Bell was cast there, exactly where we are sitting. Not exactly the Liberty Bell they line up to see in Philadelphia, but the grandfather to it, the first one cast, and later melted down to pour the second and third. So the metal that is in the present bell is largely the metal that was poured here beneath our feet in a pit. But if you think the end of a 500-year-old era is making Alan Hughes emotional, well, that wouldn't be very British now, would it? I suspect that when this workshop is empty, on that occasion, I am entitled to feel something. Even the stiffest of upper lips would waver a touch. I anticipate that that will be the case. What do you think you're going to do in your retirement? 
the first week of my retirement, I will sleep 24-7. Then I will get up and reinvent my life. Awakened by a bell? Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Still to come, Stargate. So I lived in my own sort of little universe here. With Neil deGrasse Tyson. Let's make America smart again. And later, the stellar career of Hall and Oates. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This telescope can see a lot of things, but it is unlikely to find any stargazer who can match the star power of Neil deGrasse Tyson. For a man so at home in the heavens, he's actually very down to earth, as Martha Teichner discovered. This is what happened when astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson paid a visit to his old high school. Now, should you all be in class now, you're saying? You might expect pandemonium here, at the Bronx High School of Science in New York City, which has graduated eight Nobel Prize winners. For these kids, the star man is a rock star. He's like uh, only the smartest man on the planet. But adults love him just as much. Who ever thought a scientist could be funny? You know? Exactly. Who ever thought that? He's the epitome of geek cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Title this evening is Let's Make America Smart Again. On a weeknight, he can fill a theater with people willing to pay rock concert prices to see him live talking science. She was saying that there are microbes in you that actually like chocolate and communicate this fact to your to your eating desires, and you say, gee, I want some chocolate, when in fact, it's your microbiome that's asking for it. That's right. We're That's true. He typically gets 200 requests to speak every month. He picks maybe four. His most popular talk? This movie. An astrophysicist goes to the movies. Violates more known laws of physics per minute. These bits and pieces hit New York City monuments. So the, these asteroid bits apparently had GPS locators on them. How many Twitter followers do you have? Uh, it's around 7.2 million. That's a crazy number. I don't, I don't even understand it. Every, I wake up in the morning and say, what? Should I like remind people? You know, you, you, you're following an astrophysicist. <laughs> Spin this around. What does that say? Pluto never forget. He's been famous ever since he argued in 1999 that Pluto wasn't a planet. He wasn't the only one, but he's still being blamed for its demotion. When people come in here and see the shows, are they typically astonished (laughs) at what the night sky looks like? It's almost always there's a gasp. Neil deGrasse Tyson was starstruck when he visited the Hayden Planetarium in New York City for the first time at the age of nine. Since 1996, he's run the place. As a kid, you know, I I thought I knew what the sky looked like from the Bronx. It had a couple of dozen stars in it. (laughs) I come here, the lights dim, and there's countless thousands of stars. I thought it was a hoax. By his 12th birthday, when he received his first telescope, Tyson had already decided he wanted to be an astrophysicist to study the cosmos. So I I lived in my own sort of little universe here. By the time he was in ninth grade, he'd bought himself a bigger, better telescope. And that telescope I'd haul up to the roof, this roof. Which freaked out the neighbors. Here I am with a telescope that looks like a bazooka. (laughs) <laughs> okay, it has a white tube. It's the middle of the night. There's a white tube, and there's somebody there, and I'm, there I am, like aiming it. So they'd send up a, a, the police, and all I ever have to do is say, You ever seen Saturn before in a telescope? <laughs> and then, Hey, oh my gosh, it's got rings and this. Saturn happens to be his favorite planet besides Earth. And so you would show the police officers the sky. It's transformative for anybody 
especially for police <laughs> who don't know what you're doing. And At a gotta... very, very early age, we gave them the so-called talk about how to talk to the policeman if he's stopped. You look them straight in the eye, memorize the, the, the badge number, politeness, no smart answers. Still, to hear his mother, Tony Tyson, and sister Lynn tell it, racism was a fact of life. They picketed when, as a black family, we were moving into Skyview, um, which perplexed Neil. The aptly named Skyview is the high-rise where he did his sky watching from the roof. Now, this is what I call the daddy cool picture. Everybody was looking very cool. His father was a sociologist, his mother a gerontologist, educators. But all three Tyson children had to overcome obstacles. There were expectations about what we could and couldn't do, which schools we could and should not apply to. So, so essentially the guidance counselors were saying to Neil, oh, well, you know, Harvard isn't for you. Right, you know, what, what makes you think you can get in, all, all of those things. Tyson did get into Harvard and earned his Ph.D. at Columbia. He's addressed racial barriers he faced, but prefers other subjects. Well, if you look at all my speeches, all my lectures, all my writings, there is one chapter in one book out of 13 that even goes there at all. His latest book offers a shortcut to scientific literacy, a goal Tyson pursues constantly and cleverly. His Star Talk broadcasts are like talk shows. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the science of cycling. His guests include comedians so? and celebrities. The universe is under no obligation to make sense to William Shatner, okay? No, but William Shatner's under the obligation to make sense of the universe. You might think if you're going to make a talk show on science, you get a journalist, and then they interview a different scientist every week or every day, whatever. But who tunes into that? I'll tell you who tunes Nobody. into that. Nobody? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad. It's just... Uh, so who tunes into that? People who already know they like science. Who serves the people who don't know they like science? Do you trick them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson laughs a lot. And his office is filled with all sorts of funny science stuff. He has a way of popularizing and personalizing his message. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And but as make always, no mistake, he takes very seriously his role as starry ambassador. And as always, I bid you to keep looking up. The act of looking up has always been one of reverence, with or without religion. There's the universe you've got to contend with. What does it all mean? Everybody carries questions with them, harbors cosmic curiosities, and I'm a servant of those curiosities. Ahead, Jonathan Demme's movie magic. Good evening, Clarice. The film world is mourning the loss of director Jonathan Demme. He died this past week at the age of 73. Our critic David Edelstein is among those paying their respects. Jonathan Demme was never a brand-name director like Spielberg or Scorsese, though he was as great. He saw his job as showing actors and in documentaries, musicians, politicians, just human beings in their most brilliant light. I wish I could name and show all his marvelous films, but I'll focus on three. When you hear that rock and roar, you know... He struck gold with Melvin and Howard a sympathetic meditation on the American dream of get-rich-quick, finding in Jason Robard's grizzled Howard Hughes a man whose longing for connection was mythic. Give me one reason on earth why this strange man would leave that will with you. And in Paul Lamatt's Melvin Dumar, a dreamer worth believing. I don't know. You know, I've been trying to figure that out myself. Stop Making Sense remains the best of all concert films, both stunningly immediate and gorgeously planned out. Before our eyes, a piece at a time, a band, the talking heads and guests, 
comes together. We see both a unified entity, multicultural, utopian, and a bunch of brilliant individuals. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. The most famous, the Oscar winner, was Demi's most atypical, The Silence of the Lambs. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. Now think about a humanist, a man for whom victims are never fodder, but people he loves, tackling a grotesque serial killer's saga. The tone is mournful, befitting the tale of a damaged young woman, Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling, finding strength to save other young women by whatever means. Demi loved Clarice and hated Lecter's violence so much, he said no to directing the sadistic sequel, Hannibal. Jonathan Demi was our most contagious enthusiast. I love the guy. I can't believe I'll never again bump into him in line for a movie and hear him rave about some filmmaker whose work I have to see. But he was a believer in the spirit world, in karma. I'd like to think he'll continue watching over us, reminding us that where there's art, there's hope. Ahead. I don't think there's any danger of her forgetting you. No, I hope not. <laughs> Grandpa and granddaughter. Bye-bye. Bye. On a roll. A grandfather looking to cement a bond with his granddaughter is on a roll. With Steve Hartman, we'll go along for the ride. A lot of grandparents complain that they don't see their grandkids enough. But Jimmy White of Decatur, Texas, doesn't have that problem. For one, his granddaughter lives right next door. But more importantly, he has created the ultimate grandchild enticement. You ready to go play? He thought of it the day he found out his daughter was pregnant with Sophia. Did you decide right then what kind of grandpa you wanted to be? Anytime she wants something, I'm going to try to give it to her. The spoiling kind yeah, of grandpa. <laughs> yeah, that's what grandkids are for. You spoil them. <laughs> as soon as I found out I was going to be a grandpa, that's when I started. Jimmy is a jack of all trades. He can build pretty much anything. So not long after that first ultrasound, Ready? he began constructing six flags over Sophia. Today, Sophia's own personal roller coaster <laughs> circles around her own personal carnival swing round and, round circle. and her own personal Ferris wheel. Everything is built from scrap parts. Yeah, put the seatbelt on. But he says it's all safe and sturdy enough for an adult to ride, even the roller coaster, which is grandpa-powered, gravity-fed, and very much Sophia-approved. Bye-bye. Bye. How often does she come here? Uh, Primary every day. Every day? Yeah. So this is working. Oh, it's working. As Sophia gets older, Jimmy plans to add more attractions. Go-karts will be next. All in an attempt to recreate the bond Jimmy says he had with his own grandfather. That's what I'm trying to do with my granddaughter. Because after I pass away or gone, I want her to look back all the times, the good times that we had. I don't think there's any danger of her forgetting you. No, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Of course, no matter how many rides he fabricates, eventually, Sophia will outgrow this place. Here you go. And when she keeps coming back anyway, maybe then Jimmy will realize the real draw here was never this amusement park. It was the loving grandpa Ready to go round and round? who cared enough to build it. Round and round. <laughs> Ahead, music and memories with Hall and Oates. Did I think that I'd be working with John and we'd be sitting side by side all these years later? No, I didn't. It didn't even occur to me. And later, when terror reigned in Osage County. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. 
One on One was a big hit for Hall & Oates back in 1983. It's just one of the songs that keeps the duo much in demand to this very day. Here's Serena Altshul for the record. The video may be dated, but the music definitely holds up. And at a recent rehearsal, Daryl Hall and John Oates run through their greatest hits. Gearing up for their latest tour while looking back at a decades-old partnership. Did I think that I'd be working with John and we'd be sitting side by side all these years later? Right. No, I didn't. Right. It didn't even occur to me. Daryl's 70 and John's 69. For them and their fans, the dreams keep coming true. Our job is the job that everyone dreams of. Play instruments, sing, write music, make records. Why would you want to quit? The duo has sold more than 80 million albums. They've been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Not a bad life for two very different people. Well, if you look on every album we've ever made, it says Daryl Hall and John Oates. Now, it may seem a subtle distinction, but we've always looked at ourselves as two individuals yes. who are distinctly you know, different, who work together. And to this day, that's how we view ourselves. One thing they do have in common is Philadelphia. What's that city mean to you? It's my hometown, you know, it's where I was a kid. It was the biggest influence on me because you're, I think the most important influences are your early ones. And boy, was I in the right place at the right time. Both attended Temple University. Both had their own bands. But how did they meet? This is freaking me out, by the way. <laughs> John took us back to Philly, to the exact spot where Holland Oates' history all began. Yes, it was called the Adelphi Ballroom. Their bands were to perform separately, but they say that's when a gunfight broke out. Yes, a gunfight. We had to leave. That's when we met. We met in the elevator, and I found out that he went to Temple. It's hard to go back in time. It's hard to... Yeah. To you know, to you can you can have memories, but when when the memories are connected to the actual yeah. physical space, we're actually standing in the same place where right. you know you guys it, it met my, here. Basically, you know, Daryl's recording career, my career started right here in this right. room. Partners of wow. almost fifty years. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. This is too much for me. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> After becoming roommates in this house... So I moved into the third floor up there. They started jamming together. Because I used to play my, my, uh, my little Wurlitzer piano, and I had a mandolin, and I used to play that. And he had his acoustic guitar, and he just, you know, it was proximity, really. It was an interesting coming together of music, and I think it formed especially our original sound, this sort of hybrid of soul music and folk music. And in 1973, they co-wrote what would become their breakthrough song. It was magical. It was creating something from nothing that somehow has a universal appeal, but at the same time is rooted in, in this everyday sense of loss. She's and then another pop classic. Sarah Smile, this one written by Daryl. We've got this 1976 performance of Sarah Smile on YouTube where you hold a note for an impossibly long time. Was I showing off? The hits kept coming, You're a rich girl and you're including Rich Girl, you know even though it's actually play. about a guy. You can rely on the old man's money. You can and I wrote that chorus. He can rely on his old man's money. And then I left it for about a year. A year? Yeah. So then I sat down and I said, well, a rich guy is stupid. That doesn't work. So I changed it to rich girl. Oh, you're a rich girl and you're going too far. 
By the 1980s, Daryl Hall and John Oates had reached the top, thanks to a string of catchy songs. They also became fixtures on the just-launched MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. They came to us. You know, we had a bunch of hit records. They said, we need music videos. And we said, what's a music video? Well, wear some funny clothes, jump around in front of a black curtain, and that's it. You know, nobody knew what a video was. Right. So we did these stupid videos. Looking back, you think they were stupid? Oh, yeah, of course. In 1984, they found themselves on the set of their out-of-touch music video. This was the the suit that I wore in the out-of-touch video. I call it my dog suit. That's your dog suit. It looks like a Dalmatian in it. (laughs) The song reached number one, but the video proved to be a turning point. Here we are, and Daryl and I are sealed inside this huge bass drum. It's three o'clock in the morning, and we're like, "Look, look what we what are what are we doing?" We looked at each other in the drum, and we went, "Okay, this is what we're doing. Is, Is this is this what we were meant to do in life?" So, at the height of their success, they took a break, but never really broke up. Both continued to release solo albums. And John has written a new memoir. Daryl created the popular Live from Daryl's House, a web series where he performs with young artists and legends like Smokey Robinson. While Holland Oates don't record together anymore, they still perform as a duo. And there's no end in sight. I'm so happy to have a multi-generational audience, you know, and that's an amazing thing, that I can cross generations. I love that. We are now bigger than we ever were in our entire careers. If someone would have told me in the early 70s that flash forward to 2017 that we'd be doing playing giant stadiums and things like that, it's crazy. Ahead, Buried Secrets. It was called the Reign of Terror. Sounds ominous, and it was. A chapter of American history that's been largely forgotten. But now, it's getting a second look. In an out-of-the-way corner of Oklahoma, called Gray Horse, down a road you wouldn't take unless you knew what was at the other end, sits a small cemetery. It's unremarkable in many respects, until that is you look at the dates. 1923 seems to have been a particularly bad year. And when you look at the ages, it appears few died of old age. Exactly what happened out here on the Great Plains has captivated New Yorker magazine writer David Graham for the last five years. And what he's written, Killers of the Flower Moon, has left him with a discomfort he still can't quite shake. This is a story that has real evil in it. Evil like I've never covered or ever experienced. Really? Is that dark? Yeah, yes. The villain in this story, or one of the villains, and and the people complicit are as evil as anybody I've ever encountered. His quest took him to the Osage Nation, a remote territory in Oklahoma about the size of Delaware. Like much of the area that was set aside for Native Americans, it wasn't exactly prime real estate. But in the early 1920s, something happened out here that no one expected. An oil rush. Most white settlers saw it as the ground as being rocky and infertile. And then lo and behold, this land turned out to be sitting above some of the largest oil deposits in the United States. Almost overnight, the Osage, who owned the land's mineral rights, went from being among America's poorest 
to the richest people per capita in the world. One Osage writer later described them as the Kuwaitis of the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> like how much money were we talking? Oh, they were drawing millions. So by 1923, the Osage collectively received that year more than $30 million, which today would be worth the equivalent of more than $400 million. And this was being split up by a group of about 2,000 people. With the oil royalties, the Osage built mansions. They hired white servants. They drove the finest cars. Osage towns like Pahuska became bustling cities, flush with cash and the biggest oil barons of the day. In the 1920s, this was just one of the most booming towns in all of the West. It was famous across the West uh, yeah. because there was so much money here. The U.S. government, however, didn't let the Osage control that money. Each ward, as the Osage were called, was assigned a white guardian, supposedly to protect the Osage from mismanaging their newfound wealth. But the law actually just invited abuse. So there were kickbacks, there was skimming, and in many cases there was just outright stealing where they would just abscond with millions of dollars from these Osage. And the Osage never saw this money again. But the worst of the worst conspired to do far more than steal, as Grand found out when he uncovered a dusty ledger in the archives. And I opened up the book, and it had the name of, again, of, of the Guardian, and then underneath it had the names of the wards. Next to many of the names of the wards, it simply said the word dead. And then you go down to another Osage ward, and next to the name it said dead, dead. Skip a few more. Dead, dead, dead. One by one, the Osage were being murdered. Between 1921 and 1925, the official number was 27. It became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. There were shootings, there was poisonings. One man was thrown off a speeding train. The terror was enormous because nobody knew who would be next, but also nobody was doing anything to stop it. Few families suffered more than Molly Burkhart's. She looks kind of, looks kind of sad, doesn't she? Her eyes look sad. Margie Burkhart is her granddaughter. You'd have to be incredibly, incredibly strong to even face half of what she went through. Her grandmother had married a young Texan named Ernest Burkhart, who was the nephew of the most powerful man in Osage County, William K. Hale. Hale wasn't entitled to any Osage oil money, but as Molly's husband, his nephew Ernest was. They hadn't been married long when Molly's older sister Anna was found murdered in this ravine. She was last seen heading here with two white men. One of the killers held her up. The other killer shot her right in the back of the head. Two months after that, Molly's mother Lizzie died suspiciously. Molly believed she had been poisoned. Two years after that, another sister, Rita, died when her house exploded. The cause? A homemade bomb. The family's oil rights ended up in the hands of the only family members still alive. Molly and her husband, Ernest. It's just sad. The whole family just wiped out for nothing more than somebody's greed. Because at least one of the murders took place on federal land, the FBI was brought in. It was the young agency's first case, and a young J. Edgar Hoover wanted it solved. It was so high profile, it was even featured in a movie starring Jimmy Stewart. So there's only one little Indian left, Mr. McCutcheon. Molly, the wife of your nephew here. The real-life agents began to zero in on Molly's husband. He was arrested and brought here for trial. But the courthouse hasn't changed at all, No, right? it looks just the way it looked back in 1926 when the trial took place here. What unfolded at the old Pahuska courthouse was sensational, to say the least. This would have been, in its day, considered the trial of the century. Under oath, Ernest admitted it was his own brother who'd murdered Molly's sister, Anna, and that his uncle, that benign-looking William K. Hale, had ordered it, along with the murder of Molly's other sister, Rita. Worst of all, the planet scene was for Ernest himself 
to finish the job by murdering Molly, getting sole possession of the oil rights. When Molly realized that her husband, her husband who had helped search for the killers, was in fact the killer, she could never look at him again. But that's hardly where the story ends. Grand believes there were far more murders than the FBI ever investigated. And when I began researching the story, I thought of it as a traditional mystery. You know, you think about your stories, it. right? Who done it? And by the end, I realized this wasn't a who done it, it was who didn't do it, meaning so many people were part of this. The whole town almost, at least the white part of town, was complicit, was complicit. The gush of oil eventually slowed. The Osage mansions were abandoned. Even the Osage school is now a forgotten, overgrown mess. But the Osage themselves never forgot, even if history did. There are still killers who remain unknown. There are still conspirators whose names have not been identified. And so some of these secrets, unfortunately, will probably remain lost to history. So after his first 100 days in office, how's President Trump doing? Chief White House correspondent Major Garrett has been keeping track. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. It began with an inaugural address more sour than soaring. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. What followed? A fractious tenure that occasionally strayed from the facts and put the White House at odds with Congress, the courts, and at times itself. The president's spokesman, Sean Spicer. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. Trump's inauguration brought protests to the streets and venom from the president's Twitter account. Professional protesters, he said, very unfair. The president spawned more protests with an executive order that tried to ban travel from seven Muslim-majority countries. But federal courts blocked it. The order illuminated White House divisions, advisors like Steve Bannon pushing Trump in a nationalist direction, while son-in-law Jared Kushner and Chief of Staff Reince Priebus urged cautious conservatism. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. The president fired National Security Advisor Michael Flynn after just 24 days on the job. Flynn lied to Vice President Mike Pence about contacts with Russia's ambassador to the U.S. The suspected nexus between Russia and Mr. Trump's campaign has stalked the president from day one. I have nothing to do with Russia. To the best of my knowledge, no person that I deal with does. Later, Flynn sought immunity from prosecution. This is a witch hunt, the president tweeted. Were you trying to tell the Justice Department to grant immunity to Michael Flynn? Were you trying to do that, Mr. President? Was that your intention, Mr. President, sir? Mr. President, was that your intention, Mr. President? But presidential silence wasn't typical, especially when Mr. Trump, frustrated by inaction in the Republican-controlled Congress, turned to executive action. Great thing for the American worker, what we just did. This is with regard to the construction of the Keystone Pipeline. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. Another theme? Payback for the Obama years. Nowhere more visible than the Supreme Court. I'm keeping another promise to the American people by nominating Judge Neil Gorsuch. The president added a justice after Senate Republicans last year denied President Obama's nominee a hearing. This audacious political gamble may be among Mr. Trump's most lasting legacies. And I got it done in the first 100 days. That's even nice. You think that's easy? It's time to shake the rust off America's foreign policy. A president who told the country during the campaign foreign policy was easy, confronted nuclear challenges in North Korea, continued Russian aggression in Ukraine, and one horror, 
a sarin gas attack on civilians in Syria. That crosses many, many lines beyond the red line. The president ordered a Tomahawk missile strike on the Syrian airbase where the chemical attack was launched, marking a break from his America first isolationist philosophy. It is in this vital national security interest of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. That announcement came at the Winter White House, Mar-a-Lago, where the president has spent many of his weekends at sizable taxpayer expense. Which brings us to some of the unfulfilled promises made by candidate Trump. Like the promise to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. And who is going to pay for the wall? Mexico. Who? Mexico. You better believe it. President Trump has not asked Mexico for a penny. When he asked Republicans in Congress, they declined. As for health care... I am also calling on this Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare. Mr. Trump ordered a House vote, but the bill collapsed, leaving him to wait for another day. The president took office with record low approval ratings and has finished his first 100 days in the same place, through the chaos, the infighting, and the setbacks. We love Trump! Mr. Trump's supporters remain enthusiastic, even as they, and the rest of America, await what comes next. I'm Lee Cowan. Jane Polly will be right back here next Sunday morning. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.